Let's open the Bibles to John chapter 1. Last week when I began the Gospel of John, I shared that it's my go-to gospel. Now, every time I say this, I have to put a warning out there. I am not elevating one part of Scripture above another. You guys know that, right? All Scripture is God-breathed. Holy men of old wrote as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. The miracle of the Bible is that it was written by man and written by God. And in heaven, we'll find out how that worked. But uh, I tell young pastors who preach only series, I'm like, guys, if you're not taking your people through Numbers and Leviticus, you're robbing them. There is the full counsel of the Word of God. And when we did our life uh, verse series, so many of you had verses in parts of the Bible that, oh my gosh, we think some people never read. So I'm not elevating John. Here's the thing about John. If you're a convert like me, I wasn't raised in Christianity, these were the first words I ever read in the Bible. They were like... This big, the font was like, you know, seven feet for me. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And I'm like, oh my gosh. And all these encounters that Jesus had with human beings that were fractured and in pain and suffering uh, are so memorable to me. So John has a special place in my heart. 90% of what John writes you won't find in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. And he's the only writer that tells us why he has written chapter 20, verse 30. is kind of an epilogue. And John said many other things Jesus did in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book, but these are written, these were selected by John, that you might believe Jesus is the Son of God. Nobody can leave this planet without coming to that realization. Because one day every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus is Lord. You might as well do it now the right way. Instead of in the book of Revelation, when it's going to be another way. To believe that he's the son of God, and here's what happens. Here's the payoff. And that by believing, you would have life in his name. Now, the word for life that John uses here in the Greek is zoe. He could have used bios, where we get biology. But he uses this classical Greek word, zoe, which means, and it's hard to parse, but it means life as it was always intended to be what we call the abundant life sometimes. Now, it's not a life devoid of trials. It's not a life where you get everything you want. I think we know about that. But there is a life in God that is worth living, the the torrents of living waters Jesus talked about. And so John selects these wonders, these miracles, these signs. And it's almost like John at 90 years old can, can still taste the wine that was once water. And he can still smell the mud that Jesus put on a blind man and he saw for the first time. And it's almost like John can still feel the wind at his back when Jesus told Nicodemus that you must be born again, that the Holy Spirit is blowing like the wind and everyone born of the Spirit is like that. It's almost like you can hear in the temple courts, if anyone thirsts, let him come unto me. And I find astounding he's the last man standing. We have an inside joke in our family when we're ever together. We're like, you know, one of us is going to be the last man standing. Uh, Everybody thinks it's the youngest, but you never know, right? Somebody's going to be the last man standing. That's John. Jesus had about 30 people in his inner circle. And then there were his guys, the 12, right? And then of the guys, there were three, Peter, James, and John, right? They're at the Mount of Transfiguration. They're in Jairus' house when his daughter's healed. They're, They're the leaders. And then there's John. The foot of the cross, the only disciple. Take care of my mom. Make sure she's taken care of. John, last man standing. 
I would assume the 120 in the upper room were all gone, unless there were little kids there. Mary's gone, James's half-brother's gone, disciples are gone. Even Paul, this upstart, converted rabbi who's taken the gospel to some of the greatest centers in the world like Ephesus and Athens and Rome, is gone. And John's read Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And so now he begins to write. And he selects these wonders, these signs. And the whole book's about salvation. The whole book's about deliverance and freedom. Not heaven so much, but this is eternal life, that you might know him that you might have life in his name. You might say, well, deliverance from what? Uh, freedom from what? From everything else we ever put in the place of God. See, we're spirit, soul, and body. And for many of us, we put so many things in front of God before conversion, right? We were, we were blind. You know, the Bible says Satan was leading us. We were blind. We had no idea what we were doing. But at 56, I can't comprehend living this far and not knowing God. I just couldn't comprehend it. One of the highlights of my sabbatical, and if you're here for the first time or you're new, I was granted a two-month sabbatical after 25 years of ministry. So I knew I needed to do something to reinvigorate me towards the end, and I got this wonderful offer to go to Ecuador and visit compassion sites and then spend nights with Henry Cloud, 14 pastors with Henry Cloud. If you don't know Henry Cloud, he's somebody I've read and listened to my entire life. He has a PhD in psychology, a master's in the Bible, uh, he wrote Boundaries, which is a New York Times bestseller. I've read all of Henry's stuff. And Henry is a different type of guy, let me tell you. So you sit around a fire at night and you fire questions out at Henry, and he always gives you a Bible verse first. So his answer will be, well, here's Ephesians 4, and then he doesn't give you the verse. He, like, breaks it down, and he has no Bible of it, it's just from memory. And then he's probably the only guy on the planet, after he tells you that, he'll say, now, here's how your brain works. And then he breaks all that down. Very cool, to say the least. So um, we're sitting around the fire with Henry, and uh, most of these pastors were late 30s, early 40s, with churches over 1,000. So very influential guys. And uh, one of the questions was, Henry, you know, we're looking at an older generation ahead of us where some of the most prominent guys have slid into moral failure. How do we avoid that? It's a great question. And Henry, in his brilliance and simplicity, said all of our problems stem from our failure to reflect the image of God. I'll say that again. He said all of our problems stem from our failure to reflect the image of God. Now, he went into addiction and five other things I don't have time for. But can I kind of give you the Henry for dummies interpretation, right? You're not dummies. I'm the dummy. I'm going to give it to myself. Let me parse it out for you. This is what Henry was saying. Henry was saying that you and I were designed by God in such a way that if we live according to the way God has prescribed, we will experience life in all its fullness. We will experience the abundant life, or zoe, or what my friend Andy Crouch likes to say, flourishing. I know that's a Mike Gags thing now, but flourishing, human flourishing. Andy Crouch said, no human being ever embodied flourishing more than Jesus of Nazareth. I find it hard to believe anybody would disagree with that. No human life, let alone his death, ever unleashed more flourishing for others than the life of Jesus. And of course, John had a front row seat to all this. 
John saw all this. He, he saw Jesus' encounters with people that had real problems, who, who had struggled because life had been fractured, it had gone awry, because they hadn't lived according to God's standards. We're going to get to the woman at the well in John chapter 4. We don't even know her name. When we look at this woman, she's like almost everybody we meet in John. She's lived a life not according to the way she was designed. I'll give you an example. God has given us the gift of human sexuality. He gave it to us for intimacy, for pleasure, for procreation. You know, there's a whole book in the Bible, Song of Solomon, that talks about this. And it's a wonderful gift. And yet, somehow, this woman, like so many in our culture, kind of abused sexuality. Jesus said, you have five husbands, the man you're not living with is not even your own. This woman, if you think about it, had experienced so much loss because of her condition. How do I know? Well, she's at the well at noon. All the women would come early before the heat. She's there by herself. She's probably relationally challenged because she's what she's living through. Uh, listen, I'm the product of divorce. I know what it's like. Divorce follows you your whole life. I have no idea what it's like to have five stepdads. Okay. So there's children involved here. There's a relational fracture. You think you could have five husbands and five divorces and not somehow be affected physically? I mean, come on. This is what happens when, when we live in sin, right? Sin is missing the mark. This wasn't God's standard. Let's bring it fast forward into our culture. Let's say a, a woman or a man is a workaholic. They work 100 hours a week. When somebody's a workaholic, something's wrong. Something's drastically wrong. Something's wrong with their beliefs about God and psyche and money. Something's wrong. When somebody's a workaholic, there's relational challenges. Fracture in your family, fracture with your kids, people have affairs. You have to have an outlet somewhere. Um, physically, we, you know, you know, all kinds of things go on. The question this morning is, how do we get as close to flourishing? How do we get as close to Zoe? How do we get as close as we can to be the image bearers God meant us to be? And this is what we find in John, if you're in chapter 1, verses 14 to 18. It says, the word became flesh. So that, you know, the word was with God, the word with Jesus is God. But the word became flesh and he dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. The glory of the only begotten of the Father, and he was full of grace and truth. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness we have all received grace for grace. Critical verse, verse 17, For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God at any time, the only begotten Son is in the bosom of the Father. He has declared him. Now, very early in my Christian experience, I read verse 17 totally wrong. Where it said the law came through Moses and grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So I thought, law is bad, grace is good. Okay, some of you may believe that, right? And then I read Romans. And, and then I got more of the Bible understanding under my belt. And then I began to see. The law was good. The law was perfect. The law was, Paul spends all of Romans teasing that out, that the law, the law had grace. You all know that? The entire sacrificial system was to teach you that you couldn't keep the law. Here's all you need to know about the law. 
It was wonderful. It was beautiful. Jesus fulfilled it. It was temporary. It was temporary. It was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. We wouldn't know what adultery was. We wouldn't know what stealing was. It was necessary that we would realize we needed something greater. That's why there was a sacrificial lamb. That's why there was Passover, all pointing to the lamb who would be full of grace and truth. Can I give you my opinion? I'm going to give it to you anyway. <laughs> my observation, and I'm, I'm in the number, is that most evangelicals are living under law than they are under grace. It's just my opinion. And the reason I can say that is through observation. You know, I, I look at people that are walking through trials or pain or whatever, and I hear some of the counsel they get. And a lot of the counsel I hear in evangelical churches sounds more like what Job's counselors were telling him than anything I see above Jesus or the New Testament. And it's funny because it just it amazes me, Christians, that there is this reflex going to the law and not to grace and truth. That's why Tim Keller's book, The Prodigal God, was so revolutionary and kind of launched his career. Because everybody thought the prodigal son, he was prodigal because he was lavishly spending his father and money. Tim turns that around and says, no, 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 no. God is lavish in his grace. God is the prodigal. God is the one who is lavish. Tim Keller said 95%, this is an amazing statement, 95% of all our problems in the local church would end tomorrow if we got rid of all the older brothers. Now look, we're not going to get rid of anybody. What, what he's saying is if we got rid of the older brother spirit, if we got rid of pride and ego and self-righteousness and judging and everything that's opposed to grace. So my stepdad was an alcoholic. He was a working alcoholic. He worked all day and he drank all night. Provided for us and, you know, it's just the way it was. It's all I knew. And uh, my dad would try and clean up his act every so often. And uh, he was off in the winter because he was a landscaper. And so he would go to AA meetings. I went to AA meetings at 8, 11, 15, 19. You know, I would go with him and then he'd fall off the wagon again. But I remember being a little kid and you walk in this room. There's all different guys there. And what's the first thing everybody says? Hi, I'm Joe, and I'm an, alcohol I'm an alcoholic, right? Uh, later, when I became a Christian, I found out that AA was started by Christians and that all the 12 steps are biblical. Really cool. So anyway, I look back on that, and I thought, wait a second, something's wrong here. You go to AA, and you start off by saying, I'm imperfect. I'm an alcoholic. And then you go from there. And I thought, in our evangelical churches, it's the opposite. You start off with, I'm perfect. How you doing? I'm doing great. Yeah, but I heard your wife left you. Oh, yeah, yeah, but I'm doing great. Yeah, but I heard your kids aren't. Yeah. See, in church, we have this thing, and I don't know, I guess it came from institutional Christianity, where we walk in perfect and never talk about what's really going on. Startling. Now, I might step on a couple toes, mainly mine here. God wants us all to grow. All the time. God wants us to grow, grace by grace. Do you know what my professional opinion after 25 years? The hardest people to move, the hardest people to see transformation in are the 
oldest Christians, sometimes people in ministry. It's pretty profound, isn't it? It's a profound statement. What's that mean? Well, it's the mature believer who knows the Bible, has read tons of books, that almost knows too much that it's hard to see any transformation in them. So when you look at new believers, right, they grow by leaps and bounds like weeds. When, and everybody thinks, oh, they're growing because they have, they have so much to conquer, right? Everything's new. I disagree with that. I think young believers grow because they're childlike and they have humility. It's when you know everything. It's when you have the older brother spirit that we don't see a lot of growth. So God wants us to grow. How do we grow? The ingredients are right here. Jesus was full of grace and truth. I'm going to give you a math equation. It's Sunday morning. It's the only one I'll ever give you. It's the only one I know. Grace plus truth plus time equals transformation. Whether you're 10, 40, or 100, grace plus truth plus time equals transformation. We'll quickly go through all three. The first ingredient, uh, everybody probably thinks they've cornered the market on this. Pastor Bob, I'll take a little snooze while you talk about grace. We're Calvary Chapel, grace changes everything. We know more about grace. We wear eagles shirts to, to church, and man, we're really grace-oriented. Uh, let me just go through it because in our culture, we earn everything we get. We live in a meritocracy. Grace is something freely given. I just got to say that again. We live in an area where the predominant brand of Christianity is earning, and uh, I just want to tell you, salvation is free. It's a gift. Uh, Ephesians says we are saved by grace. It's through faith, not of works. Not anything you've earned, lest any of us would boast. So grace is something freely given. So put it this way. Uh, give or take 10 years, I was born in the 20th century, in the middle of the century, in the most prosperous nation that the human race has ever seen. And I'm a white male. I'm of the 1% of 120 billion people that have ever lived. That's God's grace. I, I didn't program that, okay? I'm not a self-made man. That was grace. That, that was freely given to me. Salvation, freely given to me. I didn't find God. Last time I checked, he's not missing. He found me on a college campus. No man comes to Christ unless he's drawn. So grace is not earned. Now, grace isn't opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. But Christ died for us when we were still sinners. And you're going to see this in all of Jesus' encounters with people where grace is dispensed. Now, you already knew all that. Let me take you one step further. Grace has another dynamic. And gosh, we got to hear this this morning. We really do. Grace has another dynamic. Grace means there's, there's unconditional love and acceptance. There's acceptance for who I am. How do I know that? Because John starts out in chapter 1, verse 1 with the Trinity. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. There's no religion in the world where God is a Father, God is a Son, fully God, and God is a Spirit, fully, fully God. Now when we talk about the Trinity, we're getting into 
Very murky waters because it's hard to understand. But understand this, it's more than a doctrine. The Trinity was God's way, it's hard to word this right, the Trinity was to give us a picture of community. See, God is all-powerful and almighty, but we get this picture of community. Listen to Jesus' prayer. John 17, I do not pray for these alone, but those who will believe in me through their word, that they may be one as I, you, Father, are me, and I in you, and they also may be one in us, that the world might know and believe you sent me. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them, that you may be one, they may be one as we are one. Uh, Jesus said in uh, John 14, 31, but so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father has commanded me. You guys get what's going on here? The Godhead lives in unconditional acceptance, authority, and vulnerability all within the Godhead. God gave Jesus all authority. Jesus took the authority, went to the cross, gave it all back to the Father. The Holy Spirit does what, what the Father and the Son want, and there's this perfect community. So grace involves what did Jesus say? First commandment, greatest commandment, love God with all your strength, soul, heart, all that, and love your neighbor as yourself. This idea I sit on a beach because organized religion sucks is as far from what God ever designed. It's a million miles away. God designed community so that we could, like Adam, fellowship with him and then fellowship with one another. There has to be a place where I'm accepted for who I am. Family is that place, sadly, not all of our families. Church is that place, sadly, not all churches. Your friends. Uh, we had a staff retreat years ago, I'll never forget it, sitting around a fire again. And uh, somebody on staff said, let's, let's see how many Bobisms." We know. I'm like, Bobisms. And so the first person said, brutal, because I use that word all the time. Then the second person, like, whistled, because when I hear news that I'm not unsure about, I have this whistle. We were in the 40s for Bobisms at one point. Now, you know what that feels like? Like, oh my gosh, I've been picked apart so much, people know 40 different Bobisms. But then the other flip side of it was, these people love me and accept me. You always. Front, you guys owe us coffee on the front row, phone ringing. Um, to be accepted by people you love and yet know all your failings is what grace is all about. It's what we need. Adam and Eve experienced this, right? They had two things that every human being needs, the most two critical things. They had security and significance in the garden. Now, We'll do a, like a minute parenthetical parenting session here. Your children only need two things from you. They need security and they need significance. They don't need an Ivy League education and they don't need to go to Disney World every year, okay? They need security. They need to know they're cared for physically. Listen, emotionally. In some houses, emotions are never talked about. They need spiritual connection. They need to know they're safe. The, the greatest need of any human being at any given time is I need to feel safe. 
That's what parents are doing. That's what God did for Adam and Eve. The second thing, they need to know they're significant, no matter if their IQ is 25 or 225. They need to know I matter, that I add value. They don't need to know what they're going to do. They need to know who they are. They'll get their assignment somewhere in life, but at their core, they need to know they're valued for who they are. Again, this was all modeled in the Trinity. I had a gentleman come to me in church and said, Bob, I want to do a personality profile on you. He worked in industry. This is one of the better executive personality profiles. And he delivered it to me, and I looked at it. I'm reading all 50 pages. like, oh, my gosh, somebody opened up my brain and figured me out. And this is unbelievable. And then I got to this place where it said, your results show that you're most comfortable when people, and there's like five bullets. I won't read them. But one of them says, show they appreciate you. I'm like, what? Oh my gosh, I'm the leader. I've spent all my time trying to appreciate others. And like, I really need appreciation? Like, it was an eye-opener to me. And, and I, I, I did some work with God. Like, God, I, I need to draw my appreciation from you. And you're right. There are deep needs that I have. Now, of all that I've been given in life, and all the grace I've experienced, my wife is the single most grace that God has ever given me. If there's one thing I don't deserve, it's my wife. Now, I'm not saying that because that's what guys are supposed to say. I'm not even that kind of guy, right? <laughs> and I'll be honest with you. Look, some guys or ladies think their husband or wife is their soulmate. Some think it's their cellmate. I don't know how all that works, but it's just the way it works. But... Uh, I wake up to a wife. When you see Monica here, that's what she looks like 24 hours a day. Big, fat smile. I mean, all the time. And I always say I don't deserve it. But I will never forget these words. Uh, the second greatest word she ever said to me after I do is when I went through my burnout six years ago. I was out of ministry for four months, never thought I'd do this again. And she said, Bob, if we scoop ice cream together, that's what we'll do. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. To get somebody like that on this planet is the greatest gift you could ever have. Guys, that's grace. That's not some theological. Grace is this cocoon where we feel safe enough to know that transformation is possible. Do you all have a place where you feel that way? Maybe your family's fractured. Maybe your family of origin is brutal. Maybe, maybe that's not there. Maybe you don't have friends. You've got to find this place. That's why we push small groups. That's why we push serving teams. Life change happens in small groups. You've got to find a place, a community. You've got to find a place where you're free to be who you are, where God can bring transformation. You've got to be with people. Now, the second ingredient is truth. Now, here's the problem with truth. Uh... People like this because now I can tell people the way it really is. I'm going to tell them the truth. Um, some people say, well, what is truth? Pilate said that, right? Truth is very simple. Um, it's the way things are. It's just the way things really are. That's the truth. So in AA, you say, hi, I'm Bob, an alcoholic. That's true. I'm a workaholic. I have anger issues. Now, 
Let me warn you, without grace, truth is brutal, okay? One time we were driving back from a family vacation and my aunt and her friend were with us and my daughter was four and she was stroking my aunt's friend's nose, which was quite large, which we already all knew. And she said, you have a really big nose as she stroked her nose. You know how awkward that is with six, seven people in a car like, oh, uh, what's the weather tomorrow? Like, what do you do? Grace without truth is neglect. It's malpractice. I was a brand new Christian in college, got saved my sophomore year. I was very vocal about my faith. I was a captain my senior year. So we go to the final four, the small college final four. And all year, I room with other captains, and you know we're out in Detroit, and my coach tossed it up. He put all the seniors with freshmen. And uh, when the weekend was over, I was laying in bed with this freshman, not in the same bed, he was in another bed. <laughs> and, uh, and he said, Bob, he said, you know, I'm really glad this weekend happened. He said, you know, you're a great player, and I've learned a lot playing with you this year, and really glad we had this weekend because I really got to know you, and you're a great guy. He said, I went into the weekend not even sure if you knew my name. You know what it was like to hear that? Christian, captain. Here's a guy on the team, never played a minute all year, wasn't even sure I knew his name. And I got a life lesson at 21, and it's carried me all my life. It's a weakness. It's not a blind spot, because I know it. It's a weakness. Blind spots are what you don't know. It's a weakness that I can put task over people. It's a weakness that I can see people for only what they can deliver. And I've had to work on it my whole life. And I've always wondered, how did an 18-year-old kid have that kind of courage and maturity to speak that kind of candor in my life? He did it in the cocoon of grace, and then he told me the truth. And it served me all of my life. This is why most Christians try to avoid church and other people because they just don't want to be vulnerable. But we have to speak the truth to one another in love, in grace, because it's grace and truth that change us. Henry Cloud told a story about one day... Uh, he went out to the lady at the front desk, and she said, Henry, I'll be back in a few minutes. He said, where are you going? He ran a hospital for people with mental challenges. And she said, well, i got to go pick something up downtown. He goes, you know what? I have an appointment downtown. I'll get it. She goes, no, Henry, I'll get it. And they did that thing where they went back and forth. And she said, look, Henry, I'll get it if you want to know the truth, because you'll go down, and you'll forget, and then you'll get the wrong thing. It'll take me four hours to fix it. This has happened before. And he looked at her, and he said, why didn't you just say that in the beginning? And she said, Henry, I don't know if you want to hear this, but the reason I didn't say it in the beginning is because you walk around like in this headspace all the time and you do this and that. And she even said a name they had for it. Henry's like, you have a name for it? <laughs> uh, later on, some of the pastors were saying, well, Henry, you know, that description of that lady who had that false perception of you, how do we avoid that with our staff? He said, whoa, wait a second. He goes, she was right. I am brusque, and I do get into a headspace, and I do, you know, leave people in a wake. See, again, grace plus truth 
is what we need. That's what changes us. That's what Jesus did. Jesus came to a woman at the well and he told her the truth. You have five husbands. The man you're living with is not your own. He said, you Samaritans worship on Mount Gerizim. We Jews worship in Jerusalem. Jews are right. That's truth. Where was the grace? The grace is that as a man, as a Jew, he would sit at a well with her. Ask her for a cup of cold water. She said, how do, how do you, a Jew, speak to me? He broke every social and cultural barrier of that day and made her feel valued. And then he gave her significance. He said, go and sin no more. And she went and told the entire village. She was, the first evangelist was a woman. Because he gave her a safe place and he gave her significance. We all need this relational place. The third ingredient is never talked about. Grace plus truth plus time. Now, I know you all missed my drawing when I was gone. That's a seed. The greatest illustration in the Bible of anything is a seed, okay? Jesus told parable after parable about seeds. Seeds go in the ground, they grow. How do they grow? Over time. Not instantly. We're not an agrarian society anymore, but what Jesus was trying to say is that this physical description was, was spiritual at the same time. 1 Peter 2.2 says you must crave pure spiritual milk so you can grow into the fullness of your salvation. Cry out for this nourishment as a baby cries for milk now that you've tasted of the Lord's goodness. 1 Corinthians, when I was with you, I couldn't talk to you as mature Christians. I had to talk to you as though you were infants in the Christian life. I had to feed you with milk and not with solid food because you couldn't handle anything stronger because you were controlled by your sinful desires. Hebrews 5, you have been Christians a long time now and you ought to be teaching others. Instead, you need someone to teach you again the basic things that a beginner learns. You're like babies who drink only milk and cannot eat solid food and goes on and on and on. You know, when I sit alone with God and I pray and I read and I do all the spiritual disciplines, I get this overwhelming sense of God's love and his generosity. And at the same time, there is that prodding, there's that conviction. Same thing happens when I'm around human beings, when I travel, when I go to conferences. Spiritual formation is a matter of the presence and power of God in Christ through the Spirit, making our true self our experiential reality, the new man, not your false self, not the man you pretend to be or the woman you pretend to be. Grace plus truth plus time. Now here's the drill. We don't live in a society that values time, right? We want to jump seasons, okay? And you know how we jump seasons? You buy self-help books, books of lists and Principles, and I don't have anything against those books. I read them too. But you can't jump seasons. Uh, you know this, a three-year-old's not ready for what a teenager can handle. And you'll find out when you have teenagers, they're going to think they can handle things 30-year-olds can handle, but they can't, and so forth and so on. If you jump spiritual growth, you'll get messed up. Uh, there are kids who are forced to be caregivers way too early, 12 or 13, and it messes them up. You can't jump seasons. The reason you can't jump seasons 
is one of the primary, primary aspects of growth is trials and suffering. <laughs> uh, I wish I could tell you something else, all right? It's just the way it is, guys. It's just the way it works. I was talking to these pastors in Ecuador, and most of them only preach series. I don't have anything against series. I preach series. I'm like, guys, here's the problem with series. I can't go a chapter without reading about suffering and the second coming of Christ. The two things I never hear in a series are suffering and the second coming of Christ. Peter says, don't count it strange when the fiery trial comes upon you as though it were strange. Most evangelical Christians think trials are strange. I thought God loved me, and where's God? And, you know, suffering is a big part of our experience. Trials, big part of our experience. It's how we grow. It's part of how we grow. Our maturity is built on the wounds and the triumphs of earlier and past development. I could never be the person I am today without the trials and the things I went through in my 20s, 30s, and 40s. Job would have never been the man that he was without the things that he endured. And listen, I have all the why questions. I haven't figured this out. You know, I knew I wanted to be a pastor in my 20s, and I worked for Boeing for 12 and a half years. And I'll ask God in heaven why. I think I know a little why. God wanted me to sit around with people that I would one day serve, and I needed to know what they were living through. But I know grace plus truth plus time. And I tell people all this all the time who are caught up in a situation. I said, look, it took a long time for you to get into this. It's going to take some time to get out of it, okay? You know, God's not going to wipe the slate clean. This is the way he works. He's going to teach you something through this. I want to end here. We're only a minute away from closing. Luke 13, if you can get there, if you can't, just listen or write it in your little Bibles we gave you. Very obscure parable where Jesus said a certain man had a fig tree planted in a vineyard and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. He said to the keeper of the vineyard, look, for three years I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree and find none. Cut it down. Why does it use up the ground? But he answered and said to him, sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around and fertilize it. And if it bears fruit, well, but if not, then after that you can cut it down. The owner of this vineyard had every right to expect a fig tree to produce. After three years, he said, cut it down. It's taking up resources. Put another fig tree in. He had every right. Just like when God told Adam and Eve, the day you sin, you shall surely die. God had every right to lay out those rules. But when the man comes and he says, cut it down, the owner says, whoa, whoa, whoa wait a second. He said, let's apply some grace here. Let's not cut it down. Right? And then he adds truth. He said, let's dig a little and let's put some fertilizer and let, let's see what we can do here. And then he gave it time. Let's wait a year and then, if you want, cut it down. And we never know how it ended. I'm of the conviction that probably every once in a while in your Christian life, you need to get down on a knee and say, God, I know you've been speaking to me. I know there's dead ends. There's bad roots. There's no fruit in this area of my life. I know the scripture says all things are lawful for me 
or, or they're, they're, they're all lawful, but they're not profitable. And this thing in my life isn't profitable. And I'm going to relinquish it and release it to you. It has done nothing to help me live in accordance for the way I was made. And it might be good for everybody else, but God, this thing has to go. And would you fertilize this so that in a year or two years I might see more fruit? I challenge you. If those periods are not marking your life, you are not growing in grace and truth. John is looking back at 90 years old, and he's experienced all this. He's been exiled on Patmos. He's the last man standing. The temple's destroyed. Rome's persecuting Christians. And he said, there is a life in Jesus that is unlike any other life. 